Well, let's do it. Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on our Friday broadcast here on The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We are delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Any question of any kind, as long as it's appropriate for Christian radio and ties in with the subject matter of the show. In other words, we're not sports talk. We're, we're not real estate company. We're not a bunch of other things. But we cover a wide range of biblical, theological, cultural, moral issues 866-34-TRUTH. A lot to share with you as the show goes on, but your questions are what drive the show. By the way, once again, I'll do it. And just to prove a point, critics, you've got issues with me, please call. Let me know. Yeah, how often does that happen? How often do we extend the invitation? Day in, day out, day in, day out, week in, week out, months, years. How often do folks do it? Hardly ever. How often do they post attacks? All the time. Tells you something, doesn't it? All right, let us go right to the phones, starting in San Diego. Carlo, welcome to the line of fire. Go ahead. Are you there? All right, not sure what happened. Let's go to Puerto Rico. Michael, welcome to the line of fire. Uh, Dr. Brown, how are you doing, sir? Doing well, thank you. Uh, yes, sir. If I could make a comment uh, before I want your opinion, but I just, if I could make a quick comment. Um, from what I understand from church history, uh, the early Pentecostals from uh, Topeka, Kansas, and Azusa Street in Los Angeles, uh, what I understand is they came out of the holiness movement from John Wesley, which led to the outpouring and demonstration and so forth. Uh, but later, the Northern Baptists came into the movement and the uh, the, doc, the holiness doctrine shifted from from sanctification to finished work. And uh, I was wondering, you know, it's my opinion that the church needs to get back to uh, rediscover John Wesley and the holiness uh, movement. And I just wanted your opinion on sanctification versus uh, finished work of the Northern Baptists. Right. I'm I'm not aware of the influence of Northern Baptists and finished work. It may well be what happened. In the Pentecostal movement, I'm not aware of it, but for sure, the early, Pentecost- the early Pentecostals, especially in North America, came out of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. In fact, they believed that you first had to, to reach a state of sanctification, and then after that could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that was, that was a viewpoint they had. Obviously, I, I wouldn't fully agree with that or affirm that, but yes— I agree that the holiness traditions are biblical. I agree that we must recognize that, yes, our sins are forgiven once and for all on the cross. Jesus died for our sins once and for all on the cross. But the process of growing in holiness is a gradual process. It can be in dynamic jumps, but otherwise it is progressive. So we believe in the various phases of sanctification, that the moment we're saved, we're set apart as holy. 1 Corinthians 6.11 speaks of us being made holy in the past. 
That's why Paul writes to the saints, the sanctified ones in Corinth. But then he says, called to be holy. I'm writing to the holy ones in Corinth, called to be holy. So sanctification is past. We're set apart as holy the moment we're saved. It is present. We are becoming more and more like Jesus. Hebrews 12, 14, we are pursuing holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God. Even your holiness, your sanctification, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, that we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So it is present, it is ongoing, and then it is future. It is future, and that one day we will be completely, totally sanctified without sin or the possibility of sin with our resurrection. First John 3, when we see him, we will be like him. So yes, I believe we need to get back to it. The hyper-grace movement has taken this idea that you are 100% fully sanctified the moment you're saved, 100% fully holy, and the idea of growing in holiness is considered to be heretical. Uh, according to one pastor, it is a spiritually murderous lie. Pastor Clark Pinnock, uh, excuse me, Pastor Clark Witten says that the idea that sanctification is progressive is a spiritually murderous lie. In contrast, the best-known hypergrace preacher, Joseph Prince, told me plainly that you can't be any more righteous, but you can be more holy. So he believes in progressive sanctification. Most other hypergrace teachers do not, and, and that's a very serious problem. Hey, thank you for your question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's try to connect again with Carlo in San Diego. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, it's good to be back. Thank you. Dr. Brown, I just had a question about um, the Hebrew Roots movement. When um, I've seen a couple of clips from a man named Michael Root. I don't know if you're familiar with his uh, Shabbat Night Live and uh, some of the things that he teaches on, but I noticed that um, when he teaches uh, whatever point he's making, you know, he tends to go on these rants, you know, calling Christians that don't get this, you know, idiots and morons, and just along the lines of, you know, he doesn't present, well, this is where I differ with this or I differ with that. He just blatantly goes on this assault. Are you familiar at all with his ministry and what he kind of does? Yeah, well, well, first thing, whoever it is that we're dealing with, uh, we, can, we can correct error, we can address things that we think are wrong in a gracious spirit. We can rip up the error, we can absolutely rebuke it, but we can do it in a way that is not personally offensive because of our own flesh. I have not followed Michael Rood at all in many a year. However, in 2004... I did a review of his little book, The Pagan Christian Connection Exposed. So this was Michael Rood in 2004. And my review said this is a shockingly poor book with almost no redeeming qualities, and it is best dismissed as a mere sensationalistic curiosity. If taken seriously, the extreme rhetoric and exaggerated statements that dominate the book could prove dangerous to unsuspecting readers in fact, it bears several marks of cult-like teaching, something which is especially unfortunate since it's published by Bridge Logos, which was a Christian publisher. So here's the long and short of it. I've not followed him at all over the years. But when people come to me and ask about his positions, they are almost always these way-out positions rejecting fundamental biblical Christian teaching. So I have no problem with some saying there's a lot of traditionalism in the Christian church, you need to re-examine things. 
One of my books is called Revolution in the Church, Challenging the Religious System with a Call for Radical Change, and it's a radical change back to Scripture. I have no problem with Messianic Jewish congregations challenging a traditional Christian understanding or Catholics challenging Protestants and Greek Orthodox and saying, okay, let's go back. What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? I have no problem with that. Mm -hmm. I I don't believe, for example, that God made uh, Sunday the Sabbath, that he made that shift, and that Christians are obligated to set aside Sunday as the Sabbath. I don't see that anywhere in in the Bible. They're free to, but I don't see it anywhere in, in the Bible. However, when you have someone basically like Michael Rood, say just based on this book from 2004, he's discovered it. Nobody else has it. For example, he claimed to be the first person to discover the true site of Sodom and Gomorrah and and in the process becoming the owner of, quote, the world's largest privately held collection of brimstone on planet Earth. Uh, He claims to be the only one that's got the the calendar right. So when you have anyone that writes off everybody else, writes off the rest of the church, they're all idiots, they don't know anything, I've got the true insight, that's when you just walk away from that person. Even if here and there they've got something that may be right, you just walk away from them. We're part of a body. We're, we're part of a family. We have much in common. We have our differences within that. But when someone comes along, they're the one, they've discovered it all, that's where you say, all right, I'm going I'm to take up and leave, and I'm not listening to what this person says anymore because they're clearly in error. All right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, just to mention, on most every Friday, we are wall-to-wall phone calls for the entire hour. At the end of the hour, I thought, oh, I wish we had more time. But today we did a YouTube chat for a whole hour, just answering endless YouTube questions for a whole hour before going live with the broadcast now. Every so often, we'll have a break where we got a line or two open or a few lines open, and that lasts for a second or two. So just want to let you know, this is one of those moments where it's a great time to call in. And we'll be, we will definitely be able to get your call before the show is out. So if you call right now, 866-348-7884, 866-34-TRUTH. We'll definitely be able to get to your call before the show is out. Just want to give you a heads up on that while we have the moment. All right, let's go to Merle in Minnesota. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you, Mr. Brown. You're welcome. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah, I have a question. Okay, I have a question about somebody who is has Yeshua as their Messiah, and to say if they're a polygynist, do you think they're still in salvation, or how do you look at that? Ah, so they are saying they can have multiple wives? Yes. Yeah, polygamy is a more common term, obviously. Right, right, right. But yeah, just to, so polygamy theoretically could be a woman with multiple husbands, but poly, polygyny well, specifically isn't that, po- isn't, isn't, that po- isn't that polyandry, which is not right, allowed? Right, right, right. No, no. I, I, I'm saying either. If, no, no reason to hammer on that. You were using the exact right term. That's that's all I was saying. You you were using the exact okay. right term. Okay, fine. So, uh, can that person be saved? Well, obviously, if they live in a country that forbids that, right? Then they're breaking the law by having multiple wives and living in disobedience. If they lived in a Muslim country, that would not be the case. So can I say that, let's say you have someone that claims to be a born-again follower of Jesus, Yeshua. Let's say they lived in Saudi Arabia, and let's say, uh, or, or Uganda, 
which permits polygamy, and the person had multiple wives, would that mean they're not saved? I could not say they're hellbound because of that. I could say they're clearly not walking in full harmony with the Lord, and I could say they are disqualified from being a leader of any kind, but I could not damn them to hell over that. We know in the early church that in different cultures polygamy was practiced, and the Bible did not immediately say you have to give up every other wife that you have, but it did say to be a leader, you can only have one wife, and then that was to be the pattern. And then in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus reaffirms God's design from the beginning, which is one man and one woman together for life. In other words, God did not create Adam and Eve and Yvette and Yvonne. So polygamy will not damn someone to hell, from my understanding. But certainly they couldn't function as a leader, and if they were doing it in a country like America, they'd be breaking the law and therefore in disobedience to God. All right, thanks for the question. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. Hey, I I mentioned this during the YouTube chat I did before the show. I was looking at some of the really vile, ugly comments coming in on YouTube, which come in day and night attacking us for positions of truth to which we hold. On the one hand, I was thanking God for the privilege of being maligned, the way Jesus was maligned and being attacked for speaking the truth. I was praising God for that. And then I was also saying to myself, boy, I'm glad these people are my opponents rather than my friends. I'd hate to have friends like that. I'd hate to have supporters that were that vulgar and that vile and that ugly. I'm glad those are my enemies, not my friends. And that's a good sign as well. But thank you for your support, for standing with us. And as you join us, as you become our partners, you literally hold our hands up and you help us to do what we're doing even more effectively and broadcast to even more and more people, more and more powerfully, stronger and stronger messages, more and more amplifying our voice, which I believe serves as your voice and is much needed in this day. Become a Patreon partner. Let's put aside pennies a day, 30-something cents a day. I, I, I think most of you could do that if you made the decision. I know money's tight for many, but God will bless you for it as you do. Go to patreon.com forward slash ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown. This is not for the millionaires and billionaires. This is something everybody can do as a team. And then we give you two bonus videos every week. So we specially prepare teaching about 25 minutes long on a neat subject each week. And then the YouTube chats that we do, once they're archived, they're private. You get to watch them and enjoy them. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Dwayne in Cincinnati. Welcome to the line of fire. How are you, Dr. Brown? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. Good. Um, I was watching um, a set of videos that Dr. James White had put out, and I don't know when he actually put them out, but it was about Sola Scriptura, and he started talking about how weak that the position of the Charismatics is concerning Sola Scriptura, and he said that if you have a good, solid, consistent um, Catholic uh, theologian, that Charismatics would have a very, very difficult time being able to prove Sola Scriptura, because we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and we believe in prophecy and that. And I, of course, see prophecy 
and all of that different. Being Pentecostal, I see it much differently than the uh, revelation of Scripture. Um, but he brought out that there really was no difference. And I'd like to get your take on that, because um, I've, I've kind of looked up some things about Sola Scriptura that you have uh, kind of talked about, but this is more specifically concerning hearing the voice of God, God using somebody to say, this is what the Lord has said. And he said, well, if somebody says, thus saith the Lord, it is no different than when Paul said, thus saith the Lord. So it's still divine revelation. Right. Yep. So I'd like to get your comments on that. Yeah, first and foremost, I am charismatic because I'm sola scriptura, because I hold to the absolute authority of Scripture, and Scripture is my guide, not later church tradition, not words and revelations and dreams, but Scripture, because Scripture emphatically says that God continues to speak through prophecy and dreams and visions. Therefore, I believe in those things because I'm sola scriptura. That's number one. Number two, uh, Dr. White and I definitely have differences, definitely have different approaches, but we do it with honor and esteem as brothers. Uh, I, I deeply stand with Dr. White in so many different ways and honor him as a brother in the Lord. And I know he does the same with me. One of, one of our favorite things to do in the entire world is to team up together and debate others. It's almost like one brain speaking through two different voices. It's amazing. Now he had me on the air though, to discuss this very issue and to make the exact same distinction that you're making, that scripture is scripture, that nothing else touches scripture. That, for example, you might uncover a prophecy that was not in the Bible, that was spoken by someone that was a, a disciple of Elijah, and it was a true prophecy, but it's not Bible. It's not scripture. It doesn't have that authority. So at very best, if there was a true prophecy today, it is a word from the Lord, for a given situation, just like if you're praying, Lord, should I take this job or not? You get this, yes, do it, this witness of the Spirit. That's not Bible. That's not Scripture. If I'm ministering to a lost person on the street and say, I, I sense you just experienced a, a terrible loss, that, that someone very close to you, you just lost them, and you're wondering, does God even exist? The Holy Spirit reveals that. That's not Bible. That's not Scripture. That's not doctrine. So we make an absolute distinction between the Word of God, the Bible, which tests us, to which we submit, to which we do not question, which is binding on all people, binding on all believers, and is the authoritative final Word of God. We base doctrine on that, our information, who Jesus is, what the gospel is based on that. And then everything else is, is sub, the, our intimacy with the Lord, our walk with the Lord. We have a relationship with Him, his sheep hear his voice. Uh, he may say something fresh to you about his love for you. He may lead you and guide you and say, I want you to leave your business and go preach in Pakistan. And it's a word for more, but it's not Bible. So we make an absolute distinction between them. Uh, I know Dr. White understands our position. So he would still feel that it's weaker, hence his argument, but he fully understands. And he's had me on his show to clarify that that the Bible is different. The Bible is God's word and the Holy Spirit leading, speaking. Here, someone has a dream, and in that dream, they see someone, and when you meet this person, it's going to be significant. So they keep their eyes open, and when they meet him, turns out that this person opens a major door of ministry for them. But it's not Bible. It's not the Bible. It's a dream you had. In the same way, if, if the Lord speaks something to me, and I share it with others, the Lord really laid this on my heart. We pray about it. If we believe it's God, we act on it. But it's not Bible. 
Bible stands alone by itself as the word of God. So we absolutely make that distinction. Exactly what you're saying is exactly what I agree with. Well, and, and you know, I've experienced that in my life, and I recently um, talked to someone who said, okay, God, I need to know what my purpose is, and I need you to tell me by Friday, or I'm going to do something bad to myself. And in the very moment when the words came out, just within a, just a short period of time, the Holy Spirit then came to them and ministered to them and, and totally changed their mind. And to me, that's just part of God being personal with us and walking with us and talking with us. I'm totally in line with you. Love you, man. Yeah. I, I listen to you Thank all you. the time and, and read stuff, and I just appreciate your ministry. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. 866-34-TRUTH. What's interesting is that surveys that were done worldwide indicated that those that espoused to a charismatic Pentecostal faith read the Scripture more regularly than Christians who did Just interesting. Some polling that was done a few years ago. Uh, just looking at the clock, right? Plenty of time for calls right now. We go to Tamara or Tamara in Sugarland, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Well, first, I just wanted to say that um, I appreciate your ministry. You've really helped me and strengthened in my faith. Um, but my question is, uh, well, I'm definitely pro-life. Um, but I guess uh, one of the things that's kind of been a hiccup a little is what what is your position when it comes to like an ectopic pregnancy, like a pregnancy where the the baby was conceived in the tubes and um, you know if the baby continues to grow the the baby will die and the mother will die or any situation like that where the mother could die the baby could die something like that that seems to be kind of a a hard thing to yeah to discuss yeah. Why. so yeah. so I'm not so sure first if it's yeah uh, so. Let's start here. If I was talking to someone about that and they would say, well, you, would you allow abortion in that case? What I would do is say, okay, so would you agree with me that in all other cases, abortion is wrong? Well, let's say they say, well, I can't, you know, you guys, you're, you're so harsh and you say no abortion even for rape or incest. So I'd say, okay, that's like 1% or less of all abortions. So do you agree that on the other 99% and invariably, the people who are pro-abortion, so-called pro-choice, they won't agree on the other 99%. In other words, raising the issue of the 1% is just a smokescreen. Now you're asking it in a very sincere way. I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, as you know, and don't have a, a lot of background in this area. But, but I would say it's, it's always going to be the same principle where let's say that you, you've, uh, two people are drowning, right? And you can only mm -hmm. get to one of them. And the question is, okay, who do I have a better chance of saving, right? Or right. If, if you had a situation where one person is dying of cancer and they've got three days to live and they fall in the water and next to them is a healthy six-year-old that falls in the water and you've got an equal chance of saving both, you're probably going to go to the one that's got the possibility of a life versus the other that's go about to die. And that's what they would want anyway. So you have to look at, at, at every situation. Is it possible to save the life of both? No. Is it possible to save the life of the mother for sure? Uh, and the baby can't make it anyway. Then, then you look at all the situations. So the goal is always to save life, right? And if in the process, the only way that you can save one life 
is by losing another. You know, they're twins and there's only one that you can you can treat. What do you do? You have you have cases with with mothers in drought ravaged areas and they don't have adequate mother's milk and they have twins and one's dying and the others make it. They feed the one that's going to make it. So you're going to do your pragmatic best to save life. That's the simple principle. Save the maximum number of lives. And if it's a matter of having to choose one, then obviously you're going to choose based on viability. If you know it's impossible for this one to survive, but by cutting off their life support, it's going to enable the other one to survive, then you're, you're saving life. The whole goal is to save life. Maybe a doctor may want to call in and, and give us specifics and how it would work in the case that was mentioned. Hey, Tamara, thanks for the call. Right back with your calls on the other side of the break. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH, number the call. Before I go to the phones, just a reminder, this week and next in particular, we'll be reminding you about this. My new book, Jezebel's War with America, perhaps the most intense book I have ever written. I was gripped. Trust me, I was gripped in writing this wake-up call that connects the spiritual dots in an eye-opening way. We are now taking pre-orders for the signed numbered copies. So this will only be the first 100, 200, that's it. They're all numbered. So someone gets number one, someone number 10, someone number 50. They're signed with a scripture verse. Yes, personally, by me, my joy to do it. And when you pre-order, you also get a download of a classic teaching series. I did 12 hours on spiritual warfare. This is only available, signed, numbered with this download on our website. So go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Okay, let us go to Sacramento, California. Guy, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Great to hear from you. I've uh, been your fan since you came to Sacramento and spoke to a pastor's luncheon several years ago. Ah, I think I remember the meeting. Was that was that a Salem luncheon? Exactly right. It was a Salem luncheon with the radio uh, station here. Uh, and I'll tell you when it was. It was, it was in 2014. You know how I remember it? I remember it because that morning I got up and for breakfast, I ordered a fruit plate, and I took a picture of it to send to my wife, Nancy, because I wasn't sure about everything that I was eating, because I had eaten so little fruit all my life that eating blackberries and different things, like saying, hey, this is the first time I'm eating this. So that must have been shortly after uh, God Helped Me Change My Lifestyle, which was uh, August 24th, 2014, is when I made the radical change. So it was probably somewhere, somewhere in the months following that, if, if I'm right. But I, I do remember the meeting. I had a great time with everyone there. I even remember what I preached on, in fact. It was a great meeting. Hey, I've been studying the reason God exiled Israel from the land and want to know if you agree that the Old Testament prophets and Jesus 
condemned Israel for following the teachings of their fathers, the priests, the rabbis, and kicked them out of the Promised Land for the 1900 years uh, because of what they taught, including the Mishnah and the Talmud. And I've been studying Mishnah and the Talmud a bit here as well. Yeah, so um, Guy, I appreciate... Uh, yeah, Mishnah and Talmud come after the time of the New Testament. Mishnah's not written until the early 3rd century, so about... Yeah, so the early 3rd century, so around 220 is when it, it actually begins written. The Talmud's completed around 600. Uh, some of the traditions do go back to the time before Jesus, but the vast, 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 vast majority of the content in Mishnah and Talmud is hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. Uh, the, the children of Israel were exiled in the first case because of worshiping idols, because of immorality and injustice, so those were the principal sins that caused the destruction of the temple. They wouldn't follow, follow God's law. They didn't listen to the prophets. Because of that, they were exiled. And then once they were returned from exile, the principal reason they're exiled again is because they reject the Messiah himself. So they had, in some cases, the leadership was completely corrupt, like in Jeremiah's day. Most of the prophets were false prophets. Most of the priests were, were also greedy for gain and we're leading the people in a way of compromise. At the time of Jesus, you have various different groups, and of course you have religious leadership rejecting him. They were strict monotheists. They were serious about other aspects of Torah, but be it through their own power structure or whatever, they reject him. And then pretty much traditional Judaism develops in a way it's not against Jesus, it's without him. In other words, it's just as if he never came. It's following the laws and the traditions and building on that. So no, I don't believe that we've been in exile primarily because of the teaching of the mission and Talmud. I believe that the Jewish people have been in exile because of our rejection of Jesus, the Messiah and judgment came on us as a nation. Now, has that been reinforced by traditional Judaism, which has gone its own way without Jesus? You, you could say, but traditional Judaism is not based on, rejecting Jesus, it's based on, here's the, the, the way we're going without him. So what would make you think that, that Jewish people are in exile or were exiled for believing the teaching of Mishnah and Talmud when it, it's actually teaching that comes much later? Well, my study of the Mishnah uh, history indicate that it actually has been their oral, oral tradition for even hundreds of years before it actually got written down. In 200, and certainly the Talmud additional stuff to it was added. But I recently read the Jesus and the Talmud by Peter Schaefer, 2009, mm -hmm. Princeton, Cambridge, and uh, also because of the passages such as Ezekiel 36, 16 to 20, uh, and uh, I have a bunch of them in front of me here mm -hmm. as well. But uh, that basically uh, they condemn the teachings of the fathers uh, and the prophets and the priests of the Old Testament all the right, way right. through so, there. Right, right. So, so here, the summary. Number one, Peter Schaefer is a fine scholar, and Jesus in the Talmud is, is a very helpful volume. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, secondly, the vast majority of what's in the Mishnah uh, postdates the time of the New Testament. There are some traditions that are earlier, but the vast majority postdates that Jacob Neusner really demonstrated that well. But volume five of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, I deal with this in great depth. Volume five of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus 
I deal with rabbinic authority and why I reject it. So traditional Jews say, yeah, their traditions go all the way back to Moses. I say, absolutely not. You have some that go back centuries, but the vast majority of content of the Mishnah and Talmud postdates the New Testament. That being said, Guy, here's the generalization I'll agree with, that our people have often been betrayed by our leaders, that our leaders have often gone in the wrong direction because of which the Jewish people as a people have suffered. So I would agree with that, that many of our prophets were false prophets, many of the priests were false priests, but the true prophets were always speaking the whole time. And there were godly priests like Ezekiel, who was a priest and a prophet, or Jeremiah, a priest and a prophet, speaking at the same time. So I, 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 would, I just would not read too much of Mishnah and Talmud back into Jesus' day and make that the root of it. I would say there were other larger issues that were in play. But thank you, sir, for the question. And Peter Schaefer's volume is, is definitely a, a very helpful volume. Eight six six three four truth. Let's go to Nicole in Texas. Thanks for joining us on the line of fire. Hi, Doctor Brown. Hello. Um, I guess it was about a week ago you talked about the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if you took calls that day, but I wrote some questions down that I'd like to ask you. Sure. And the first the first one I don't know if you heard this term, but it's kind of like the business side of church, or like the church industry, kind of like the music industry or sports industry. And I I know a lot of people, I think, are frustrated as far as where the money goes. And I guess that's my question, because mm-hmm. I've heard people teach that a tithe of 20% was really never about money, but that it was possibly about food or getting some type of wheat or grain to the rabbi. And I wanted to see what you thought about that and also about, um, you know, giving the congregation the detailed amount of where money's going. You know, for me, my paycheck, I know where all my money's going down. To yeah. And I don't, I don't know why churches don't do that because you yeah, know, well, not everybody wants a big um, band or a big music stage yeah, yeah. or special. Yeah, so, theater, so let me, so. Let, me uh, let me address that. There are definitely abuses. There are ministries that uh, have individuals that become mega rich through the sacrificial giving of people, which is wrong and and unethical and and poor stewardship and brings reproach to the name of the Lord. But the vast majority of congregations do not have a a lot of extra money. The vast majority of pastors uh, have to have to stretch to make budgets work. Uh, the, the idea that most of the churches are just rolling in all kinds of money, the vast majority are, are not. And I've been involved in the church world for over 47 years. And generally speaking, if you are a member of the church, a giving member of the church, then you can request to see where money goes. And the church should be able to open its books to you. And it shouldn't be secretive. Now, for sure, you, you shouldn't be going to the church unless you trust the leaders, unless you find them to be people of integrity and, and you like the larger decisions they're making. So if you saw that zero money is going to feed the poor in your community, but they just bought a $3 million sound system, you might say, I don't want to give my money there, right? So that's not the kind of place you want to be going to. But generally speaking... Do you believe that from from the Bible about 
Originally, it was 20% of food or wheat, and now it's turned into this money thing? No, it's all the same. No, in other words, it's all exactly the same. You were giving up your substance. So I've been in meetings in India when during the offering, people come and lay a vegetable uh, on the uh, the altar because that's what they have from their garden. It's always the same. In other words, we use currency now. The currency in the ancient world was was more bartering with, with actual things you had, all right? But it, it was both and. The, the principle is the same. Those who are taught the Word of God should then, their way of supporting that is the natural. In other words, so someone comes and sows into you spiritually. Here's the pastor. They're praying. They're serving. They're working 50, 60 hours a week. They're helping those in the community. How do they live? They live through the offerings of the community, all right? And then as there's more money, now they can be full-time. Now they can take that money and help with others in the community. So it's, it's all the same. Uh, tithing is not commanded in the New Testament, but it's an excellent principle, proportional giving, giving the first fruits, honoring the Lord in, in that way. Galatians 6, let him who's taught in the word share all good things with his teacher. But it's not for the purpose of money-making. It's for the purpose of sustenance. In other words, just like you go to work, you work your 40 hours plus in the week, and you get your paycheck at the end of the week. So Paul says, well, those that minister spiritually, it's the same, because they're probably working more hours, could be 50, 60. I've had times where my schedule is 80 to 100 hours a week of ministry-related activity. And in the same way, who's paying you to do that? The people who are being blessed, the people who are being supported. But if I'm getting wealthy based on your sacrificial giving, that's not the gospel. That's sinful. If I am coercing money out of people, for my personal gain, that is not the gospel, that's sinful, and those people will give account to God. But if it's a healthy church, Nicole, and you're a part of that church, the book should be open, and you should be able to see how the money's spent, and if you feel good about it, then that's a place where you can contribute and support. Thank you for the question. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you for joining us on this Friday broadcast. You've got questions. We've got answers Straight to the phones, Jacob in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, hey. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, how are you doing? Doing well, sir. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, under the Old Covenant, uh, before the times of uh, Christ's death and resurrection, uh, would a faithful Jew go to heaven when he passed away. I'm going to hang up so that I can uh, hear your answer. Thank you. You got it. Thank you for the question. So there, there are two possible answers. One answer, oh, okay, if we believe that someone's soul slash spirit exists after the grave and is not sleeping with their body waiting for the resurrection, which is my view. I don't believe in soul sleep. I believe that the soul slash spirit, when you die, goes to either be with the Lord or is separated from the Lord. So in the Old Testament, let's say someone like Abraham who believed God and and God justified him. It was counted to him as righteousness. But what happened to him when he died? One view would say that he was in a place in the netherworld, but a place of 
blessing, ultimately called Abraham's bosom, Luke 16, a place of blessing, but not yet in heaven because heaven had not yet been opened up. And it was only opened up after the death and resurrection of Jesus when he brought his blood and cleansed the heavenly things that had been defiled by the fall of Satan and that he ascends into heaven and then opens the door for the saints of old to go into heaven. That would be one view. That's the view I heard when I was first saved. The other view would say, no, not at all. Psalm 17, the psalmist hope is when he died, he would see God's face and that you would go immediately into the presence of God. Let's just say there is debate about it. I can't be dogmatic. I do believe that the moment someone died in the Old Testament, they would go, if they were righteous by faith and, and live that life before the Lord, that they would go into God's presence. But there are arguments, and I respect those arguments, that they had to await the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Hebrews 11 could point to, to that, that they without us were not yet made perfect. Uh, thank you for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Lowell in Maryland. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, I've been thank you. I've been listening to you for a long time. Awesome. Um, I wanted to, uh, there, there are some people recently that have been engaging, well, have been engaging me um, in regards to Christianity. They always try to pull over um, the, Christ, uh, the Egyptian Ankh, right? Mm-hmm. The, the cross with the circle on top. Yeah. Right. I wanted to get your perspective on it. I have a perspective, but I wanted to hear um, your perspective because a lot, a lot of people who argue against Christianity try to blend the two. So just wanted yeah, so, to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so first thing, let, let's get down to basics and say, well, what, what's the mm-hmm. Egyptian religion equivalent of the Bible and, and this monotheistic book? And what's the Egyptian uh, equivalent of one God creating the universe? And, and what's the Egyptian equivalent of, of this one who brings atonement to the world through a sacrificial death. Give me the Egyptian equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. It's, so, in other words, you, you're not comparing two of the same religions with, with lots of parallels. You're comparing apples to giraffes. I mean, you're comparing two completely different things. So I'd start there and say, okay, well, let's, let's read the Sermon on the Mount. Show me the ancient Egyptian equivalent of that. Or I'll tell you what, let's start reading in the prophecies of Isaiah, like in... in chapter 41 and, and about one true God, only one true God. Show me that in the Egyptian literature or, or a real parallel to Genesis 1 on, and this lofty monotheistic creation. So you have no such thing. And, and then say, look, you've got all kinds of different symbols. The fact that the Ankh could resemble a, a cross a little bit. You, you've got how many different shapes are there? For, for example, the, the, the original, the, the Paleo-Hebrew, the older form of the Hebrew writing, the last letter, Tav, uh, that one potential shape it had was an X, all right? And you could also be in the shape of a cross. And what does that prove? They're different shapes. That, that's all. They're just different shapes and sizes. Uh, Nazis used the, the, Egyptian, the, the Hindu swastika, which was a symbol of good luck. They used it and it became the, the swastika, but it had nothing to do with hating Jews or German nationalism. It was a symbol they adopted. So there are all kinds of different symbols, all kinds of different shapes. The bottom line is Jesus was crucified, and that's why the cross became an important image. It has nothing to do whatsoever with Egyptian Ankh. But I, I'd fight back with substance. Let's compare substance. 
show me the same gospel message. Show me the same message of salvation from sin and transformation and becoming a child of God through the cross. Show me that anywhere else. Of course, it doesn't exist. It's unique to the Christian message. But the fact that you know, the ach might resemble a cross, who cares? It's meaningless. It has no significance. I agree. I agree yeah. wholeheartedly. I argue on the same pretenses. One more question. Uh, yeah. People who argue against uh, Christianity, right, They all. some people always point to the idea that the, the letter J was not a part of um, um, the Greek at the time. Um, what, what is your response to that, right? Because they, 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 they attack the letter J, the letter J, who is Jesus. There was no J, um, and that, you know, the, the Messiah is Yahushua. I, I can't recall the name. It's, it's yeah, well, forget that. So, so no, no, number one, there was no English language oh. then. There was no English language. So the, the Y in Hebrew becomes J in English. What's the mystery? So you've got to every name with J that you have. Joseph was Yosef. Uh, Josiah was yep. Yoshia, uh, right? Jehoi- Jehoiakim was Jehoiakim, and on and on. So every, every J name that you have, uh, James was Yaakov. So there was no English. So this is how we say it in English. We say, fine, let's say it the way it was in Greek, Jesus. Use the Greek, Jesus. Yep. Or we use the Hebrew, Yeshua. Fine, great, mm-hmm. no problem. But there was no English. Say, why are you speaking to me in English? There was no English language then. Why are you speaking to me in English? <laughs> so it is so unbelievably idiotic. And, and the crazy thing, Lowell, is that people, that they major on that. Yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, let's keep going here. Michael in Lexington, Kentucky, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Uh, sir, I've, I've, I've been waiting for months to be able to be on this show, so... Oh, I'm uh, so you glad you're program. here. Yeah, get your question out yes, quick sir. so I can answer, please. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, okay, so my question is about uh, the doctrine of hell. Uh, I, I've heard some really loopy stuff about how, you know, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 4, 24-7, about how God is all is an all-consuming fire. And um, someone will take that and talk about the lake of fire in the book of Revelation that we see. And they'll say that, you know, the lake of fire was really God's presence and what it was, it was consuming the sin off of people. And really what it is is that the, those people who go into the lake of fire are like, they're not, they don't receive like eternal separation from, from God, but just the sin that they committed is yeah. consumed by God. And then they, yeah, you, yeah, you already know the nonsense. And so it's, it's really universalism. It's like, yes, you it know, is. Hitler, Stalin, they just were, you know, the sin that they committed was just consumed by God, and then they're, here they are glorified, just like the saints. And to me, it seems wasteless, because then what's the purpose of salvation? Yes. So I'm trying to get your Right, so you just, the purpose of salvation is that you don't have to suffer as long. But hey, listen, if, if, I knew that, if I knew that everybody ultimately got in, even after a period of suffering, I'd have a whole lot less incentive to lay down my life to help others find exactly. Jesus if I knew they're ultimately going to get in. And look, a Hitler, he deserves it. Let him go through that. All right, so uh, number one, when, when the purifying fire is spoken of, that's like Malachi 3, God being a refiner's fire. God being a consuming fire, Eshochla in Hebrew, Deuteronomy 4.24, is repeated in Hebrews 12.29, not in a purifying way, but in a way of final judgment, and therefore beware. Uh, Hebrews 10 warns 
about the only thing certain the willful sinners can look forward to is fiery judgment, which, which devours the adversaries. What it consumes is the adversaries. What does Daniel 12, 2 tell us? That many who sleep in the dust of the ground will arise, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What does Matthew 25, 46 say? That some will go away into eternal life and the others into eternal punishment. What's written in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter? That, that when the Lord returns, he will punish people with everlasting destruction. What's written in John 3.16, that those who don't believe will perish. What's written in Matthew 10.28, don't fear him that can only destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. And so, right. so you're talking about lasting destruction, lasting punishment, lasting judgment, lasting fire. No question about it. It is not purifying fire. It is the fire of destructive judgment. And because the judgment is ongoing, Mark 9, quoting from Isaiah 66, the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. And that's the picture in Revelation 14, the beast and the false prophet tormented day and night forever by fire. So no question, it is not the fire of purification. That is the absolute heresy of universalism. All scriptural logic well, is against it. Purification part from the brimstone that's there, and they say you know, like the brimstone is a purification <laughs> stone, and you know that. Yeah, like it, like it purified Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The fire and brimstone. <laughs> what is what is exactly. Jude? Yeah, what does Jude tell us that that's a reminder of those who suffer the wrath of everlasting fire? Now you can debate whether the fire totally destroys and wipes out or whether the fire continues to burn in judgment. But it is not purifying fire, it's the fire of hell judgment. Michael, you are exactly right on. And I hope that little bombardment of Scripture confirms your thinking there. Bless your friends, have an awesome weekend. Join us at AskDrBrown.org. Endless resources for you there.